Welcome to Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temme, and I'm joined by Joe Fawbush. Hi, everybody. You're chipper on a Monday. I am. <laughs> yes, I, I am excited to be here. It's a great day outside. Not not that I'm by a window. No, it isn't. Oh, it is here. Yeah, it's oh. it's nice. It's a little cool, but I like it a little cool. <laughs> and chiming in before I've introduced him is Andy Leonati. <laughs> Hello, I am now... Fully vaccinated and broadcasting right. and broadcasting at 5G frequencies. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting my second shot. Not looking forward to possible side effects, but it'll it'll be fine. I'm not too worried. It is worth it. Exactly. So what are we talking about today? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good question. So today we are talking about sentencing in criminal trials. It's something that's on a lot of people's minds right now, given how many of us watched with bated breath for the Chauvin trial verdict. And now the next step is to figure out what his punishment is going to be. So we're going to talk about that and some little tidbits about sentencing in general. So a lot of fun today. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. It's the thing that people care about the most. So if you're facing a a criminal charge, that's the first question everybody has. What am I facing? And that's Mm -hmm. the biggest question with the Chauvin trial. Yeah. What is he looking at? Absolutely. What is he looking at, Andy? Yeah, that's a good question, Joe. And the simple answer that I can give right now is just like we tell a lot of people seeking legal advice on (laughs) findlaw.com. It depends. Yep. Um, (laughs) It's the favorite thing of lawyers to say. Yep. It's our answer to everything. Yeah. So right now we are uh, Chauvin's case. It was scheduled for mid-June. It was on the docket for mid-June, but I think I saw recently that it it has been pushed back a couple weeks. So it's looking more like late June now. So the first thing that I'll say when we go through this is that he was convicted on three charges, but in Minnesota, he is only being sentenced on the most serious charge, which in this case is a second degree unintentional murder. So right there, if you're thinking about some sort of like consecutive sentencing thing, Mm. disabuse yourself of that notion. (laughs) He will only be sentenced on the one on the one charge Mm -hmm. also meaning that if say an appeal were to successfully say toss the second degree murder conviction he could then be resentenced on the third degree murder conviction um or so on so forth to to the manslaughter conviction eventually maybe well, should we should we clarify? Because Laura brought up the overturning of the third degree, because that's still a possibility, which we've mm-hmm. discussed, I believe, in a previous episode, that it might get overturned. But Andy, what you're saying is that that won't actually affect his sentence because he's only right now being sentenced on the second degree murder. Right. That is correct. Yeah. If in the Mohammed Noor case, the Minnesota Supreme Court tosses out third degree murder, and then Chauvin is able to successfully appeal then as well to have that conviction thrown out for himself. It doesn't really matter a whole lot because of the fact that the jury convicted him of second degree murder. Mm-hmm. So right now, the what we're looking at is um, this is where people can maybe if they aren't familiar with sentencing guidelines, this is a good this is a good case to maybe start to familiarize yourself with the sentencing guidelines of your state. Um, In Minnesota, the way it works is it is 
essentially a point system that is based off your prior criminal record um, combined with the severity of the of the offense. Um, so certain categories of offenses have these recommended sentencing lengths. It's it's given in a range, say 10 to 15 years. So someone like Derek Chauvin, who has no prior criminal record, he is going to be on the lowest end of the recommended sentencing guidelines. So even when people talk about saying the max prison sentence for second degree unintentional murder is 40 years, for him, it is really in the range of 10 years and eight months to 15 years Mm -hmm. because he has no prior arrests and convictions. So that is what we're looking at first to start with. Judge Peter Cahill, you could most likely expect him to issue a sentence in that range. But hold on a minute. (laughs) (laughs) But wait, there's more. (laughs) The process does not end at sentencing guidelines. In this case, prosecutors gave notice that they want to seek a sentence that goes beyond the guidelines, arguing that there were several aggravating factors in the death of George Floyd that warrant a longer sentence. Basically, what the prosecution is arguing is that in committing the second degree unintentional murder, Chauvin essentially displayed an exceptional level of malice or cruelty or something like that. Some of those aggravating factors that they have listed in a filing include that it happened in the presence of children, that Chauvin abused his status as a police officer, as an officer of the law to commit the crime, Mm -hmm. that he knew that George Floyd was in pain and having trouble breathing, and that he continued what the jury found was an illegal assault. He continued that assault after George Floyd lost consciousness and medical assistance arrived at the scene by mm-hmm. keeping him in the in the prone restraint. There were several others as well, but they all essentially addressed the same thing that despite bystanders sh- saying you're killing him, you're hurting him um, or uh, EMS responders, all these people say that basically he displayed ex- an exceptional level of violence and cruelty by continuing to restrain him, which ultimately now he's been convicted of killing him by doing it. And prior to jury deliberations, Derek Chauvin's lawyer told the judge that he was waiving his right for a separate jury proceeding on these uh, additional aggravating sentence factors. And essentially, they the prosecution presented this additional evidence during the course of the trial. Mm -hmm. What could have happened is we could have had a whole nother basically trial right after for the prosecution to attempt to prove these aggravating factors beyond a reasonable doubt. And you could leave that in the hands of the jury, but it was all done in sort of a expedited fashion. And I think the strategy amongst uh, Chauvin's lawyer, Eric Nelson, was that if the jury was going to convict him, that they also probably didn't want to leave those sentencing decisions in the hands of the jury as well. And so it's now fully in the lap of the judge to decide if these sentencing factors apply. And if he does, that gives him pretty broad leeway in deciding a sentence. Um, so he could he could exceed that 10 and a half to 15 year range. From what I understand as a non-lawyer, he could, Judge Cahill could go up to the max of 40 years if he wanted. But 
I'll just say right now that that would seem extremely unlikely for someone without a criminal record. Right. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right about that. I think Mm -hmm. if it's anything north of 30 years, it would be pretty surprising yeah and could potentially be the subject of an appeal yeah which which could happen regardless but uh, a 30-year sentence is about what most people are expecting it to top out at there will still be a sentencing hearing Derek Chauvin may choose to speak there um, although now that now that he's facing federal civil rights charges he may continue to not speak mm-hmm. but I think there could also be some kind of character witnesses on his behalf as well uh, speaking to the judge that day. But yeah, a max sentence seems like it would be a surprise. Mm-hmm. He's So he's going to get eight months, give or take, seven, eight months, give or take, for time served already because he, he was incarcerated for a good portion of last year before bailing out of jail mm-hmm. after he was indicted. And Minnesota, the norm is kind of two-thirds of a sentence is served in the penitentiary and and then you be eligible for parole with you know standard good behavior and additional conditions and whatever and so if he was sentenced to the minimum around 10 years eight months you would really only be looking at seven years or something like that in prison Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which i know a lot of people would be kind of upset about but i will say this in case we haven't made it in case we've kind of failed to make it clear derek chauvin is a criminal defendant just like anyone else Mm -hmm. subject to the same constitutional rights and protections as anyone else going through the system. Right. So I wanted to go back to your earlier point, Andy, about early release in in Minnesota. It's called supervised release. And it's not the only state that does a similar approach. But yeah, in in Minnesota, it's typically two thirds of your sentence is served behind bars with one third on supervised release, better known as parole. And this is kind of the default unless there's a reason to not do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, when you're looking at two thirds of a sentence plus time already served, and if you're looking at the exact minimum, you know, I think maybe a lot of people, if you're listening and you're a little shocked by that, what, seven years in jail number, but with, with the no priors and all the circumstances surrounding it, I mean, I think it's more reasonable that he would serve closer to the minimum than to expect that he would get closer to the maximum. Yeah. And, this is, I'll say, this is speculation on my point. I've seen this written about by some criminal defense lawyers and stuff for some of the other issues that he's now facing, such as the state tax evasion charges that he is facing. Most lawyers are expecting a guilty plea in addition for no additional time served on that. Mm-hmm. So that would that would not add any time to his sentence, most likely. I think that the federal civil rights case is what could add a, some additional intrigue to this. If he were to, say, get a lighter state sentence, you might see the DOJ go harder mm-hmm. at him in, in that case and push for a longer sentence in a federal penitentiary. Right. Or if they're satisfied with the sentence he gets, you there may be some sort of plea deal there as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we were talking a little bit about what the hearing will involve And so Judge Cahill is going to explore some of these factors that would influence sentencing, such as the crime in front of a child, you know, whether he caused George Floyd psychological harm. Mm -hmm. These are a little bit questions of law, but there's also an interesting issue here between findings of fact and 
determination by the judge of what the law entails. You know, most sentencing is carried out by the judge. That's not always the case, mm-hmm. but most of, most of the time, the judge is responsible for issuing a sentence, and the judge uses already established facts, uh, either from the jury or um, you know just things that are available to the judge, like a criminal record. But in some cases. Uh, you have to make a finding of fact even in sentencing. And of course, as we all know, there's a right to a trial by jury. And Laura, I know you've written about this quite a bit, and I think mm-hmm. you you know a little bit more about Blakely than I do. So I'm wondering <laughs> if you could chime in here and help me out and explain Blakely. I've, well, I've probably read it more recently. I'll say that for <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I would just, for, for anyone who was riveted stuck to the TV watching this trial unfold and maybe at the end when the verdict was was read and then Judge Cahill started talking about Blakely factors mm-hmm. that may have been most people's first exposure to that yeah to that kind of term and and they didn't really that and that was some like some insidery court jargon that didn't really mm-hmm. when he said that I because me as a non-lawyer when he said um, he just kept talking about Blakely, and I was like, "Yeah, I just, I had no I had no idea what he was talking about." <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of questions about it too from you know friends and family, and so Blakely is a 2004 Supreme Court decision, and it relies pretty heavily on another Supreme Court case, which is um, Apprendi versus New Jersey, and both of these deal with that line that Joe was talking about of the right to a trial by jury. And when it's okay for a judge to make those decisions on sentencing and when you do need to have it decided by a jury. So in Apprendi, the statute that was at issue was the New Jersey hate crime statute, which provided uh, an opportunity for judges to give an an enhanced sentence if they found that the defendant had committed the crime. I believe it was with the purpose of intimidating a person or a group based on race. And so the judge could do that on their own. They could, under that statute, apply an enhanced sentence if they found that that was the case. However, the Supreme Court looked at that and said, well, that's a finding of fact at that point. And that's something that you need to have a jury decide because the prosecution needs to prove beyond reasonable doubt that this, you know, this action was committed with that intent. So then a few years later, we get Blakely versus Washington, where the defendant in that case, Blakely, had been convicted of second degree kidnapping, which came with a maximum sentence of 10 years. But for someone with Blakely's criminal history, the sentencing guidelines had it set at about four years for a maximum sentence. But the judge in his case used the state's sentencing guidelines to go under the maximum in the statute, but over the suggested sentence for someone with Blakely's criminal history and sentenced him to seven years. So this gets all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says, well, nope, you can't do that either. (laughs) And at that point, the general understanding was that as long as the judges weren't going beyond the statutory maximum, they could use these kind of discretionary questions. But that was the impact of Blakely is that the Supreme Court said, no, any question beyond did this person commit this crime has to go to the jury. Now, what we saw with the Chauvin trial is that defendants are able to waive their rights under Blakely. And that's what Chauvin did. That's why everyone was talking about a Blakely motion 
where the prosecution's filing their motion that they intend to try to go outside the guidelines because of these factors. And then he has an opportunity to say, okay, I either want it to go to a jury or I don't need it to. And so he ended up waiving his rights under that case. So just to clarify for people maybe who um, aren't as familiar with, with how criminal sentencing works, we've, we're talking about two different things here. We're talking about the maximum statutory sentence. And this is true of most crimes. Most crimes carry a maximum and a minimum sentence. Mm-hmm. And this can be a pretty wide range. And then additionally, states have developed guidelines like we were talking about before. Usually it's a point system or it's a worksheet or something that you fill out and it's kind of, you know, yet you add it up and it makes it a little bit more of a formula. And Mm -hmm. the idea is to get it up to be a little more consistent with uh, how criminal defendants are sentenced so that there's not such a wide disparity. Yeah. So in this case the prosecution is not seeking more than the maximum sentence under Minnesota law. They're seeking a greater sentence than the guidelines would typically allow for. Right. Exactly. It's well within judge Cahill's right to do this. Mm -hmm. If the prosecution is able to show these aggravating factors exist because we're still under the law. Right. Judge Cahill could not sentence him to 50 years, you know, by saying like, "Hey, I don't, I don't like the cut of your jib. You're going away Correct. for yeah. sixty years." Um, yeah, you don't seem, you don't seem remorseful enough for. Yeah, right. When I was talking earlier about, I think it might be closer to the the more minimum. That's because that's what the guidelines are at. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that Judge Cahill will not find aggravating factors to bump up the sentence. Right. Right. You know, predicting these things is is pretty hard to do. You never quite know what it's going to be. But yeah, we're looking at a range between, I I also suspect it will not be the minimum. So, Mm -hmm. you know, will it be 14 years? Will it be 20? Will it be 25? You know, I think this is kind of the range that we're looking at. Yeah. I also, I just want to point out now about Blakely v. Washington. It was a 5-4 ruling, Mm -hmm. but I'm looking at the majority in the dissent and I, it just... It's like it makes you long for a different time in our uh, legal and political <laughs> worlds. In the ma- yeah. in the majority of this case, the majority it's- ruling, we had Scalia, John Paul Stevens, David Souter, Clarence Thomas, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg mm-hmm. in the majority. And in dissent, yeah. we had Sandra Day O'Connor, Stephen Breyer, William Rehnquist, and Anthony Kennedy. Yeah, like, very strange bedfellows in this case, for I sure. Lo- I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I wonder if a, if a part of it is that Blakely did have a pretty huge impact. It, it sort of called into question sentencing guidelines all over the country, including the federal sentencing guidelines, which ended up being declared unconstitutional. Now, they, they kind of got around completely getting rid of them by saying, and this was a couple years later in U.S. versus Booker, the Supreme Court said, okay, under Blakely, the federal guidelines are unconstitutional, but we're not going to get rid of them entirely. We're just going to say they're advisory rather than mandatory. So I guess they, they went the Pirates of the Caribbean route. You know, it's <laughs> it's guidelines and not actual rules. And I can't believe I just made that reference, but I'm keeping it in anyway. Oh, it's fantastic. That's, that's the perfect reference. Yeah, I mean, for a while there, people were wondering if we were just going to have to get rid of guidelines entirely. 
Um, right. Which really would have shaken things up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Well, there is, you know, there's the whole debate about, you know, guidelines were kind of put in place to take away some discretion from judges right. where it appeared they were coming down harder on a certain kind of defendant than another. Mm-hmm. Or not coming down hard enough. Or not, yeah, or not coming down hard enough. Exactly. Right. But now you have people say that, you have some people arguing that the guidelines are too rigid and mm-hmm. criminal defense and criminal law and sentencing and finding of guilt and all this stuff is, especially in high profile cases, is always a good opportunity for people to kind of reexamine their priors, depending on who the defendant is and who the prosecutor is and what's at stake. And mm-hmm. just in case, just just in case we have sounded, you know, too gleeful about this verdict or anything right. like that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, Andy. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, I was I was just going to mention that um, historically, you know, we were talking about some of these constitutional rights and sentencing, and there actually is some history here about how much of these constitutional protections actually apply to criminal sentencing. So, you know, this is always kind of been an evolving area of the law, and with states constantly looking at criminal justice reform. I mean, it, it's continuing to evolve, and I think we're kind of in the in the midst of a push to reexamine some of the guidelines. Uh, maybe, you know, some people want judges to have more discretion. Um, some people worry about discretion mm-hmm. and whether that'll end up impacting people of color, for example. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that goes into this, and and it's a little political. It's it's a little legal. Mm-hmm. That that's why it's. So interesting to talk about a case like this and and see all the possible penalties that may come. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Fine Laws Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at finelawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com. I am also Kawabunga-ing. Kawabunga. Fantastic.